If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please go ahead and open up to Proverbs chapter 3. Um, Proverbs chapter 3. And while you're finding your place in God's Word in Proverbs 3, um, I just want to take a moment to give you a little bit of background on the book of Proverbs before we jump right into the message today. Uh, so first, um, it, it, is, it is widely believed by, by historians and Bible scholars that Solomon wrote the majority of the book of Proverbs. They were written by King Solomon. Um, his, his part of the book was probably written somewhere around the 10th century B.C., so 10 centuries before Christ. Um, the purpose of the book of Proverbs is to give wisdom to the reader so the reader can live a wise and godly life. That's the purpose of the book. Um, and even in the opening verses of the book, it tells us wisdom begins with a fear of the Lord. And just in case you're wondering about that phrase or maybe you're new to church and you're like, fear the Lord, I don't know, that sounds like something, but I'm not sure. Um, fear the Lord means to respect God for who he is and respond to him in trust, worship, obedience, and service. To respect God for who he is, because he's God and we are not, and to respond to him with trust, worship, obedience, and service. Um, if God's not honored and his word is not followed, then wisdom, uh, as defined in the Bible, the Bible says that wisdom can't be attained. Um, it's unattainable, <laughs> uh, apart from honoring God. And the purpose of the book of Proverbs then is to develop um, a wise, skillful approach to life, to living, which begins with a properly, uh, with a proper relationship with God. That's the beginning point. And another thing that I want to mention on the front end before we jump in, because uh, we're going to walk through 12 verses of Proverbs uh, today, but before we jump in, I, I just want to read this. I got it from uh, one of the resources that I studied in preparation for the message today. It says this, it says, Proverbs are distilled to the point sentences about life. They boil down, crystallize, and condense the experiences and observations of the writers. The very brief but concentrated nature um, of, the, of the Proverbs cause their readers to reflect on their meanings. They tell what life is like and how life should be lived. In a terse, no words wasted fashion, some statements in Proverbs relate to what is commonly observed in life. Others recommend or exhort how life should be lived. And when advice is given, a reason for the advice or the counsel usually follows. And this one's big. Many of the uh, proverbial maxims or many of the Proverbs should be recognized as guidelines, not absolute observations. These Proverbs should be recognized as guidelines, not ironclad promises. Um, what is stated in the book of Proverbs is generally and usually true. That's what a proverb is, something that is generally and usually true. Um, however, if you live long enough, you know that there are exceptions um, in life, and exceptions are occasionally noted in the Proverbs themselves. So now that we know kind of the nature of what we're reading, let's read the scriptures together. We're going to be in Proverbs 3, starting in verse 1, and it says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. 
Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. In church, I felt this passage was an appropriate passage for Father's Day, since the writer is speaking as a father to a son. He's giving wisdom and guidance on how to live a life that's centered upon God. And by the way, this should be the goal of every father, to teach their children how to center their lives upon the Lord and how to grow in their relationship with him. And so today I want to give you a Father's Day five, five instructions from a father on how to live a godly life. And by the way, we can also read these instructions as being written from the God of the Bible, who is our heavenly father, to us. We can read these as instructions that are written to us for our good and for our instruction and for our care. One Bible scholar even said it like this. They said, this is not a matter of earning God's love. As in Proverbs 2, the passage begins with my son in verse 1. God's speaking to us as his beloved ones, his adopted children. God is not stuck with us. He chose us because he loves us. And now he's coaching us in how we can be fully alive for his glory. And so that's how we can read this today. And so as we walk through these five instructions, um, what I would ask of you is you consider how God might be speaking to you to live out your faith according to his commands. All right, so we got five instructions. Number one, remember his teaching and remain in his love. Remember his teaching and remain in his love. It says, my son, he starts out with this, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. And the first instruction that we're given here um, comes from these first two verses. The father tells his son to remember. He says, remember my teaching. And then he gives a really good reason. He says, first, we're promised to have longevity, which in scripture, oftentimes longevity was a sign of God's blessing, right? Um, and again, these are general statements, right? So um, longevity is, was generally seen as, hey, that's a sign of God's blessing. But more importantly, we're promised to have peace and prosperity. And the word for this in the Hebrew, um, I'm not going to deep dive the Hebrew like John Shua did last week, but, uh, but, but the word for this is, to, is shalom, shalom, which means wholeness, health, and harmony in all of life, shalom. And one, one pastor and Bible scholar said it this way. He said, uh, Proverbs 3 is an education in life at its best. How to live well in every area, at home, at work, and all around. And in the first few verses of Proverbs, God's showing us the way into shalom, good success, refreshment. Um, so following God's commandments and teachings leads us to a long, prosperous, and peace-filled life. And by the way, that's despite whatever the outward circumstances are, Right? And so to be clear, um, how this differs from something like the prosperity gospel or what you might hear called the health and wealth gospel, um, those are false gospels. Those teach you to use God um, to obtain material things, right? All the while ignoring who he is, what he says, um, and, and his lordship. So it teaches you to kind of use God to get something material. That's, that's a false gospel. That, that's the prosperity gospel. Um, the false gospel makes the material thing the centerpiece of our lives. Um, that's no gospel at all. The Bible teaches us 
here about shalom is that when God's at the center of our lives, when God's in the middle, we will have unending peace and we will be whole and thus fully human as God intended us to be. And that's a big difference, church. Um, God's the only one who can give us this shalom. And if you think about it, material things and, and advertisements and, and things like that, I, I mean, my, my undergrad degree was in marketing with a minor in advertising and public relations. So, like, so, so I understand, like, material things often promise this kind of shalom and peace in our lives, but it seems like they always come up short, right? It seems like they always come up short. They never deliver on what, on what they sell. And so let me ask you, church, what teachings are you following? What sets of truths, statements of belief, or motivating principles are guiding your life? What are they? And how would your life or how might your life be different if the gospel of Jesus Christ was what you always remembered, what you believed new and fresh every morning, every midday, and every evening when you lay down to sleep? Um, are you remembering, as it says in Proverbs 3, are you remembering your heavenly Father's teaching? And then in verse 3, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So we're actually told to not let love and faithfulness leave us, but instead to bind them around our neck and write them on our hearts. Now, that's some pretty intense language to use to describe what it looks like to remain in God's love, right? And so I, so I want to focus on the word steadfast love and faithfulness, that phrase right there, steadfast love and faithfulness. Let's focus on that for just a moment. Um, who do those words describe? Do those, do those words always describe us? Is that who it could be talking about? No. They describe God. Those are character traits of God. God is steadfast love. God is faithful. His character is to exude faithfulness, right? He's faithful in all things. And so when it talks about clinging to God then or, or, or binding those things around your neck, um, I, I would say it as, hey, you're clinging to God. That means you're laying the entire weight and foundation of your life on him. And so remaining close to God and trusting in God's steadfast love and his faithfulness leads you to finding favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And this in turn leads to being subject to God and taking his teaching so deep in your life that it begins to shape your character from the inside out. So as, so this means, this isn't just like an intellectual belief. This is like you believe something so deep to your core that it begins to shape who you are. And that's called church being conformed into the image of Jesus. Remember and remain church, remember and remain. Second instruction, second instruction. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Now, if you've been around church for a while, this verse is probably the most familiar verse to you from this passage. Um, you've probably heard it. Maybe you've seen it on a coffee mug. Maybe you, you had a friend that had a t-shirt with it or something like that. Um, <laughs> When we're told to trust in the Lord with all our heart, that means that we are to put the entire weight of our existence on God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Put the entire weight of your existence on him. Not only intellectually, not only when things are bad or when you're in a time of crisis, 
um, not only when it seems like it'll work out best for us to follow God or when it's convenient to follow God. No, this means you put the entire weight of our lives on God at all times. Think of it this way. Um, a, a lot of sports teams, they'll use phrases like all in or something, right? So, so here, so here well, what I'm saying, even if it's cheesy, we go all in. <laughs> we go all in and we rely on God's goodness, right? We rely on his superior ways to direct our lives. We put all of our weight on him, on who he is. And conversely, it says, in, in, in opposite language, it says, and do not lean on your own understanding, all right? So when you lean on something, you put your weight on it, right? So, so that's what we're talking about here. It says, when we lean on God, we can't lean on our own strength, our own ways of thinking, because we're leaning on God. And when our weight is placed on God, He's a firm foundation. He's a solid rock. He's the one who can carry us, right? Um, another sports phrase, um, I, I'm, sports is sensitive to me right now because my Brooklyn Nets last night couldn't get it done. Um, but there's a guy on the Brooklyn Nets named Kevin Durant, and what he did in the past couple of games is what we say in sports, we say he put the team on his back, right? Like, like he carried the weight, right? So when our weight is placed on God, he's the one who can ultimately carry the weight of whatever you're bringing, right? Like, like whatever you're bringing, he can carry it. He can bear it, right? And, and so this verse also, interestingly enough, it points us to the source of true wisdom, which is, as I mentioned kind of in the opening, the source of true wisdom is God himself. And you see, we often think, or sometimes we're, we're told by the world that we'll find wisdom just by looking inward or looking to what popular people or famous people or influencers um, say, um, or that sometimes we're told by the world that, hey, wisdom just kind of, it just kind of comes naturally like when you get older. So when you're old, you'll be wise, right? But God's word doesn't talk about it that way. God's word says we're not to lean on our own human understandings of things like wisdom, um, but instead we are, we are to submit these things to the Lord. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so we're actually not just talking about like academic subject matter here or like what you might read in a textbook and learn it and memorize it or something like that, but instead what we're talking about is all things. And that includes people's views on what is right, what is wrong. Um, all of that stuff must be submitted to the Lord. In Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Knowing God is the source of wisdom, church. Walking close with him is where we find it. And living a life where we trust in the Lord with all of our heart is the path to being a wise person. It doesn't just happen with age. It doesn't just happen because you listen to somebody that you know or someone that you see on TV. Verse six actually says we ought to acknowledge God in all of our ways, right? And so this implies us having a close relationship with God, walking in step with his leading because he leads our lives on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. God cares about all the intricate details of your life. Did you know that? Like he cares. Like he cares about all of it, not just the big things. And generally speaking, uh, which again, I'll caveat here, the book of Proverbs teaches us that when we follow the Lord, our lives will, on average, be smoother, easier, less stressful, and less problematic. Now, before, like, I understand. Like, this isn't health and wealth gospel. Like, okay. Like, generally speaking, right, it's not a direct promise, 
from God that every aspect of our life will be easy and carefree at all times. We know that's not true, right? Because we've lived enough life to know that, right? Um, kids, if you're listening, you will live enough life to realize that. That, 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 it's, that, that you know, it's, it's not always smooth sailing, right? Sometimes there's bumps in the road. But what it does mean is that when we follow God's ways and when we live according to God's plans, our lives will often follow a more peace-filled and righteous pathway, which leads to less fear and more joy. And joy is an inner thing that does not p- depend on how smooth the journey is, right? So despite your circumstances, the Bible's telling you that, hey, when you follow God's ways, there is joy and there is peace that surpasses all understanding, no matter what you're facing. So let's use something uh, tangible as an example of this. Let, let's use money. Money. Did you know the Bible has a lot to say about money? Um, according to one Bible scholar who did the counting, I didn't do the counting, um, but he did the counting. He says, money and possessions are mentioned 2,350 times in the Bible. Did you know this? 2,350 times in the Bible. Uh, Depending on what kind of Bible you're using, you probably don't have 2,350 pages in yours. Um, but, But money and possessions, the idea of money and possessions are mentioned that many times. The Bible's teachings on money can, gen- I mean, that's a lot. I, I mean, if you had to digest all of that information and try to figure out 2,350 of anything, that would be difficult. So let me just boil it down for you real quick. Here's a few things the Bible says, generally speaking, about money. It says, first, be generous. Give a portion of your money back to God. We'll talk about more about that one here in a minute. Avoid debt by living on less than you make. Save money for a rainy day. Invest for the future. Strive to leave an inheritance for your children's children. Married people should make financial decisions together. It's not yours, it's not mine, it's ours. Do not become entangled in the finances of other people. That's pretty much it. That's pretty much, in general, what the Bible says about money. Now, if you follow the Bible's teaching on money and you begin to handle it according to God's ways, then, again, more often than not, you will have peace in the areas of finances in your life. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to become rich. It's not a guarantee of that. Although many people have become very comfortable and prosperous and generous by following God's teachings on money. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. And so this is actually, church, why we offer classes like Financial Peace University, And we offer one-on-one financial coaching to members of our Crossroads family. Because we believe that when you acknowledge God in the way you handle your finances, he will make your path straight. And this area of your life will prosper. Which, by the way, is not just so you can hoard up wealth, right? The Bible talks negatively about that. But it says you should become an extravagantly generous person when God blesses you, right? And so, with that in mind, um, think about those things I said. Avoid debt. Live on less than you make. Don't borrow money. Save money for a rainy day. Save for the f- invest for the future. Be generous. When you think about people that live according to what the Bible says about money, it seems like they kind of understand money, right? It seems like they generally might prosper in that area. Um, trust in the Lord in all areas of your life, crossroads. Instruction number three, honor God and shun evil. And so in verses seven uh, seven and eight, it says, we're given the instruction to be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So a father here gives this instruction to a son. 
He says, don't be prideful and think you know everything. <laughs> don't think that your wisdom is superior to God's wisdom. This is evil. Turn away from that. The instruction here, again, is to fear the Lord, right? This is just another way of saying it. Give God the holy honor he is due, while at the same time, turn away from evil. Turn away from things um, that, that you know go against what God says. And so the question that I thought of when I was coming up with this, I'm like, so let's say, let's say you're legitimately wise. Like, like, like you're somebody that fits the criteria here of being wise. Why not be a little prideful about that? After all, don't you have more wisdom than other people? Haven't you made more wise decisions down the line? Isn't your track record better? Maybe that's something you should like, you know, kind of pat yourself about and be, and be happy of. Um, but then I thought about it and I was like, no. I was like, absolutely not. We should not do that. God's word does not give you the right to take credit for that wisdom. Why? Well, do you remember where it came from? Where does wisdom come from? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. A life submitted to God is the starting point for acquiring wisdom. Without God, what wisdom would you and I have? What wisdom would we have apart from God? So honor God with that wisdom by not thinking of yourself as too good, too smart, too clever, etc., etc., etc. Instead, what does the Bible say? Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Turn away from that manner of thinking that you have it all figured out. That's instruction number three from a father to the son. Honor God and turn away from evil. Instruction number four, give back to God. Give back to God. Let's read verses uh, nine through 10 here. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So here, the fourth instruction from father to son turns to, to something that we often call generosity. Generosity. God places a high value on his people being generous people. Generosity says something about our hearts and it says something about what we place our identity and our security in. And by the way, it actually has nothing to do with having a lot of money or being rich, okay? Nothing to do with that. No matter what God's entrusted us with, he desires that we give a portion of it back to him. And this is true, by the way, whether you have $10, $10,000, $10 million, or $10 billion. The amount of money does not matter here. What matters is, are you honoring the Lord with how you use it? And I've heard it said best when talking about generosity, and specifically about Proverbs 3.9, um, I've, heard, I've heard it kind of explained with this phrase. It says, like, God wants our first and our best. God wants our first and our best when it comes to generosity. And so maybe if you've been in church a little while, you've heard of the word tithe. Maybe you saw it somewhere in the Bible or you heard it uh, talked about in like a Bible study or here in church um, or in another church. And to break it down really easy, that word tithe, it means a tenth or 10%, okay, 10%. Scripture teaches us to give back 10% of what God gives us. And in the New Testament, the primary place of giving for a believer is the local church. And here at Crossroads, we tell our members, hey, if you're currently not tithing, if that's not something that you're doing now, take a step towards that. Start working towards the tithe or the 10%. Um, we're not saying you have to go zero to 100, anything like that, but start working towards that. Take a step towards the tithe. 
And again, if you want to grow in this area of your life or if you just have a bunch of questions about that, um, I'd invite you RSVP for one of our Financial Peace University classes that we offer around here at Crossroads from time to time. Um, that class will teach you how to handle money God's way. It'll teach you how to do it. It'll teach you about how to become a more generous person. And in addition to that, we, we also offer one-on-one -on -one financial coaching to people here in our Crossroads family. Um, it's, it's something we offered. It's something I've actually personally been trained in. Um, and, I, and I thoroughly enjoy seeing people begin to turn their financial lives around by following verses like Proverbs 3, 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Now, some people kind of get hung up on the nitty gritty and they go, okay, pastor, uh, is that 10, like you talk about 10%, but you know, I, I, I'm a number cruncher. I like to crunch the numbers. I want to know, is that 10% of gross or is that 10% of net? And how do I calculate 10% if I have retirement contributions? And what do I do about my HSA, my FSA, my 401k, my IRA? I'm going to school to get my MBA. And when I file my taxes, I got to go see a CPA. Like, like, what do I do? I have no idea what you're talking about, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the deal, church. Here's the deal. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Just be faithful in the 10% you do give. If between you and the Lord, 10% of gross is what God's calling you to give, then give it faithfully and be faithful in that. Uh, if you're faithful in giving 10% of your net and that represents your first and your best to God, be faithful and give that, okay? Um, let, let's keep it simple. Give God what is your first and your best. And that's only between you and him what you know. When we're faithful givers and when we're good stewards of what God has entrusted to us, church, we are then, um, again, this is Proverbs, it, we are then often given more to use for God's glory. Now, that's not health and wealth gospel. It says, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Um, God will often, not always, hear me, God will often, but not always, uh, continue to bless those who honor him with previous blessings they've received. And so the question is, how are you using what God's given you? Remember, it could be $10, $10 or $10 million or $10 billion. Perhaps the reason sometimes we feel like our barns are not being filled and our vats are not overflowing is because we're not properly stewarding uh, um, what God has given us. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Give God your first and your best. That is the fourth instruction um, from a father to a son. Give back to God. Instruction number five, submit to God's correction. Submit to God's correction. Now, here we go. Here we go. The final instruction we're given comes from verses 11 and 12. And if we're honest, it's often the one that's the hardest to hear sometimes. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Church, I can't help but think of parenting when I think of this verse. As a parent, I discipline my child because I love her. And if you're a parent, perhaps you do the same. <laughs> because I want what's best for her. And because I want that so badly, I will correct her when I see when she does something that I know is going to cause her harm if left unchecked. And as Christians, church, we have a heavenly father who is far superior to any earthly father. He is perfectly good, perfectly loving, and he's perfect in our discipline of us. He's perfect at it. God corrects us, 
and he even allows suffering to come into our lives to teach us. He is perfect church in the way that he does this, unlike earthly dads. And I say that being one of them. The father speaking in Proverbs reminds us that when God corrects us or when God allows something other than blessing to enter our lives for a period of time, we are to submit to it, church. We're to learn from it and we are to grow closer to God through it. How is that possible? How do we do this? How can we do that? There's one way. Look at verse 12. The Lord reproves him whom he loves. The Lord reproves him whom he loves. We can embrace the discipline of God because we know he loves us. I'll say that again. We can embrace the discipline of God because we know he loves us. By the way, this is what Christian parents try to teach from an early age to our kids. Again, we're not, we're not God, we're not perfect like he is, but this is what we try to do. When we discipline our kids, we always couple that discipline with an expression of our love. So, when my, so, so like when my wife and I like have to discipline our daughter, we always do it, we always combine the discipline with some kind of expression of our love, or we try to. Um, why? Combining discipline with love teaches and reminds a child that every form of correction they receive is done in love and grace, not in hate and wrath. We want to remind our kids that every form of correction is done in love and in grace, not in hate and in wrath. And this teaches a child to actually embrace correction and not to run from it. And isn't that a good lesson we, we often need as adults, right? A child is taught to be open to the idea of being told no or stop or don't since they know that the one telling them loves them more than they love disciplining them. And so it's the same with us. We know that we belong to God by the way God lovingly disciplines us and corrects us from time to time, and we need it, and it's his grace when he does it. And in the New Testament, Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, it actually quotes Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, when it says this. It's kind of a long passage. I think it's coming up uh, behind me on the screen. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here's the thing, church. Our lives will not always be rose petals and rainbows and puppy fur and unicorns. You already know this. But the discipline of the Lord is to be received, not rejected. If we reject God's correction, then what good does it produce? If, if we don't heed it, if we don't turn from whatever God's telling us to turn from, then what good does it produce? Nothing. And so 
Church, on this Father's Day, I want to leave you with, with these instructions. Again, as with anything in Proverbs, these are general statements about how life works best. There's always exceptions. Life is full of exceptions. But these are general statements about how life works best and how it works when it's lived according to God's ways. Things may turn out different in your individual circumstances, in your individual lives, as there are exceptions to this rule all the time. But these instructions from a father to a son, from our heavenly father to us, are for our good and they're for God's glory. Amen, church? Amen.